Well, amen. I have, as you could probably tell in, when, in talking with the children, I've always loved vacations. I love, I've loved taking them. I've loved planning them. Uh, I have, when the kids were growing up, um, I always looked forward with great anticipation of leaving schedules and uh, the, the rat race and the deadlines and the schedules and the busyness and the stress of normal day life, whether that was uh, from work or school and all that was involved in that. And I know, I know that you all can relate. It's something that we all experience. But today, these breaks seem even more necessary. And I say that because there seems to be this ever-increasing and relentless, even onslaught of this hyper, um, hyper-competitive, uh, performance-based, task-minded Goal-oriented culture that we live in. It just seems to go on and on and on. And it seems the pursuit of what's good and right and acceptable is so prevalent that we all at some point of the week um, begin to run on physical and emotional and spiritual fumes. And so we hope and we plan these times away, whether they're long term, you know, a week or a weekend. We plan those things because we hope that the time away will allow us to recharge. We, we hope that we can refuel and reinvigorate ourselves so that we can jump back in on Monday and do it all over again. But I think, I think... We all would have to agree that as wonderful as vacations are, and even as I was sharing, and, and by the way, Graham, I, my, one of my most favorite, not the, but one, was also going to Montana. You're going to love it, okay? And I looked forward to that with, with enormous anticipation, and it was well worth it. But even, even that, even that trip was limited in its... Um, it was limited on the rest that it provided. It was limited, uh, you know, and I wouldn't, and again, don't get me wrong, I love vacations. I, I wouldn't trade one weekend away. I wouldn't trade one week away. Um, I wouldn't, I don't regret spending one dollar or hour on the trips that we had with our kids growing up. And I'm even looking forward to planning some sort of annual trip now that they're older and, and almost all married. I'm hoping we can pull that off where we do that together. So whether you have one week, two weeks, three weeks, or four weeks of vacation, take them, go, enjoy, okay? But I think we have to admit, we, we need to understand that the means by which we seek rest are limited because they're temporal and temporary. They're temporal and temporary fixes to what are spiritual and eternal desires and needs. We have been created and redeemed for rest. We've been created and redeemed for much more than we tend to settle for. 
Another way to put it would be we expect far too much from our vacations and in the process we fall prey to settling for far less than what is ours in Christ. We look to meet our God-given needs and desires for rest by ourselves in our own ways rather than look to the Lord to satisfy them through the means through which he's ordained or the means that he's ordained. In other words, sometimes we spend a great deal of time trying to satisfy needs, our need for rest, by ourselves, and we only succeed in doing that temporally and temporarily, all the while neglecting to seek the rest that, that God has promised, which is spiritual and eternal Even though it's the latter that we're called to strive for. And so my my prayer has been all week that tonight the Lord would use his word that the writer says is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart to encourage us. And to convict us and to do exactly what he is so that we might do what he is calling us to do, which is to strive to enter into his rest. Because the promise still stands. The outline is in the back of your bulletin. There is one there in the note taking guide. We're in Hebrews chapter four, verses one to eleven. And our outline looks like this. There's a warning given. The promise made, the rest offered, and the call issued. Okay, those four things we're going to look at. Let's pray before we begin, okay? Father, would you, by your Spirit, allow us tonight to consider Jesus more fully and completely, and as we do, would you help us to strive to enter into the rest that you have provided for us in and through him? Please use me in such a way that you accomplish the ends you desire through the simple means you have ordained, which is the preaching of your word. Your word that is living and active. Speak through what you have already spoken and may it pierce our hearts and not return void. And I pray these things in the more excellent name of Jesus, our Sabbath rest. Amen. All right, Matt has already read it for us, but... I wanted to remind us of last week for those of you that haven't been a part of our study. So last week we saw that the writer of Hebrews presented a very stern admonition and he painted a very severe picture of the ramifications of unbelief back in chapter three. And here in chapter four, he's continuing that warning. He's picking up where he left off. He continues with the warning, but he does so in a much more positive way. If you go back and read chapter 3, you'll see that the focus was really on disobedience and rebellion and the consequences of an evil and hard and unbelieving heart, the deceitfulness of sin, um, and the inability to enter into the rest the Lord had promised. And it was necessary to do. But this week, while the warning continues, he, he does so or he frames this warning within the positive aspect of the promise that the Lord has made and that still remains. 
But let's look first at the warning itself. Let's go back to verse one. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So as he did last week, the writer stresses the importance right away with the benefit or the importance of the relationship of those within the body of Christ, the local church. He stresses the importance of of coming together and being involved in mutual accountability and care and concern for one another. And he says, basically, we need to take as a group, he says, we need to take seriously the horrible possibility that some of you might not persevere to the end due to a lack of faith. He's up front. He says, we don't want that, but we have to admit that there's a possibility. He says, it's one thing to have heard the promise. It's one thing to even believe the promise to be true. But it's a whole other thing to accept the promise by faith and cling to it by faith and not let go of it by faith. We saw last week the problem of the nation of Israel in the wilderness. We saw that they hadn't mixed any faith with all that they had seen. They had been given all the evidence possible. They had seen marvelous works by the Lord to to remove them and to redeem them from Egypt. They had seen the pillar of fire and the and the pillar of uh, of the cloud and They had seen far beyond what you and I have ever experienced. They saw all of those signs and wonders, yet the adversity that they experienced caused them to shrink back because they weren't, in fact, trusting the Lord. And so he says, may that not be the case for any of you. May it not be that case. Don't harden your heart. Don't fall prey to the deceitfulness of sin. Don't trust in yourselves. Have faith. Endure. Trust in the Lord. But notice the tone change. It's pretty significant. The warning continues, but the focus shifts from the negative aspects of man's unbelief and man's unfaithfulness to the positive aspect of God's promise. In other words, it shifts from man's response to the promise that God has made. So in verse 1 again, it says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. And then he says, for good news came to us just as to them. In other words, there's nothing new here. There's nothing new going on. God had made a promise to his people and he is keeping his promise. The promise still remains. It, It Nothing has changed. Nothing has been rescinded. It had not been altered. It was one and the same promise. It's the same good news. He didn't have to make a new promise because others had failed in their receiving of the promise. It's a valuable lesson. We see that the surety and the validity and the longevity of the promise was not and is not determined by the faithfulness or the faithlessness of the one receiving or on the receiving end of the promise, but it has everything to do with the faithfulness of the one giving the promise. God made a promise that he will keep. 
And that's sure because we're going to read in just a few weeks in chapter 6. That God made this promise. And he swore upon himself and his own name. There was no one and no name greater upon which he could swear. And so we know that the promise is sure. It's guaranteed And we know it's one promise because there are one people and there is one plan of salvation. So nothing, nothing has changed. His promise is the same yesterday, today and forever because he himself is the same yesterday, today and forever. And the promise remains. But what is the promise? Very simply, the promise is rest. He offers rest. Verse three, it says, for we who have believed entered that rest as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a day, a certain day today. Saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, there are several aspects I just want to quickly walk through in regards to this rest that we find in this passage. And the first is that it is God's rest. Right? He says, this is my rest. So that means that it is far different from the rest and relaxation that many of us try to create or attempt to and, and actually do create on our own. It's a rest that God himself enjoys And it's a rest that he invites us to experience with him. It's his rest. Secondly, it's also a spiritual rest. The writer is referring to that which the rest in Canaan pointed. It pointed to a greater reality of eternal salvation. And that salvation was salvation and rest for the soul. It is a spiritual rest in which we're kept safe and we're at peace with God because our enemies of sin and death have been defeated. So it's his rest. It's a spiritual rest. It's also a Sabbath rest. It's, it is the rest that God entered into after he completed the work of creation. God continues to work, but his creative work was completed And it's into that rest that he entered. And it's a rest that you and I, when we talked about this in Leviticus, it's a rest that we have been created and redeemed for. Because it was the pinnacle of creation. It is, to, it is a rest in which we cease from laboring. And therefore it's an all-satisfying rest. So it's God's rest, it's a spiritual rest, it's a Sabbath rest, it's also an eternal rest. Again, we, we learned in Leviticus that unlike the other six days of creation, there was no morning and evening mentioned on the seventh day of creation. 
which points to the fact that the rest that God entered into continues today. It began from the foundation of the world and continues even now. It's not temporary. It never comes to an end. One commentator said it's an abiding condition. It never ceases. It's unending and everlasting. It's also an exclusive rest. It's exclusive in that, and this is difficult, it's it's a difficult truth, but it's one that we need to recognize that not everyone who dies is now in a better place. Everyone who dies is not finally at peace or at rest. The, sat, the, the rest that, that is spoken of here is a rest promised for those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a promise for God's children because it's a promise of true salvation. And it's a, it's a trust for those who trust in the personal work of Christ for that salvation. This rest is for them. And then finally, it's also a rest that the author says remains. It's a rest that remains. But there, there are two parts of this. There is an already and there's a not yet. Okay, there's an already and not yet as far as this rest that remains. Verse 3 makes it very, very clear that the rest that God offers is entered into presently by faith. When we come to faith and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we enter into that rest. And in verse 7, as he did twice in chapter 3, he quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8, and says that today, now is the day of salvation. The promise is so sure that the things that are to come are already ours in Christ. But they are presently experienced now. It is possible to experience them now because we enter into them now. But in verse 6 and in verse nine, uh, eight, verses 8 and 9, he makes it clear that the rest is also something that the Christian is waiting for. It's also something that is not yet. It's also something that is to come. We, we have to remember that Psalm 95 was written after Joshua had led the Israelites into the land of Canaan. So they are already into the promised land, the land of rest, when the, the writer says that there remains a Sabbath rest. So there had to be more than what they were experiencing in Canaan, as it was always intended to be. The rest in Canaan merely pointed to what was ahead. And so we see that there's this future reality of rest that still remains for us to be a part of. And the writer says, while it is entered now by faith, it will be entered into fully and completely at the consummation of all things when Christ returns. And so now his encouragement to them is, is that, yes, right now, rest in Christ Rest in Christ and His grace and His Spirit and the hope which is given because all of those things will provide for you. As He's speaking to them, it will provide for them the rest that they need in the midst of that escalating persecution. In the midst of that pressure that they're receiving from their Jewish friends to revert back and to forsake Christ. But he's also wanting them to know that there will come a day. So, yes, 
you will receive rest so that you can endure the, the suffering and the pain and the trials and the sorrow and the sadness. But there will come a day, he says, the day will come when the pain, sorrow, sadness and suffering and tears will be no more. Really, if we could summarize it, we could say that his encouragement to them is there will be a day when there is no more enduring, only enjoyment. No more enduring. Simply enjoyment. Enjoyment of the Lord. And it's it's this tension between those two. That creates or causes him to make the call that he does. Or to issue the call that he does. In verses 10 and 11. He says. For whoever has entered God's rest. Has also rested from his works. As God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And we read those two verses together. And we, how do those fit? They seem to actually oppose one another. Because in verse 10 we read. That the writer is saying those who enter into God's rest through Christ by faith are at full and final rest from their work. And then he turns around in verse 11 and says, but so in other words, in verse 10, cease striving. You have ceased striving. And in verse 11, he says, keep striving. And we wonder, what is he talking about? Well, we need to go back to what he's the illustration that he's been using with the children of Israel. We go back to chapter 3 and what have we seen? It was the Israelites who, who were redeemed and called out of Egypt. They were called out of that endless work as slaves to a place of freedom. They were promised peace and safety and security and a life of abundance and joy in His presence. And yet they also had to endure the wilderness. They had to walk through the wilderness. They had to get to the promised land. And the wilderness was full of those trials and and sufferings. So they had to trust in the Lord's provision and in the Lord's protection between that time that they left Egypt and before they entered the promised land. They had to strive to endure. Their, Their striving had ceased in terms of seeking their own redemption. But yet they were moving ahead and striving toward that which laid before them. And the writer is saying the same is true of the Hebrews. He's telling them they too had been redeemed and set free from the burden of their sin. And they no longer were weighed down by by the, the need to merit their salvation. They had been they had been saved. They were they had been delivered, but they too were to trust in the spiritual resources that the Lord had provided them in their current wilderness. They were to rest in the Lord, trust in him in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of that pressure, though they were citizens of heaven. He says, you you're still sojourners and aliens and exiles. And he says, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't do what your forefathers did. The final day of rest approaches. The promise is sure. It's yours for the taking. Rest in Christ. Endure. Persevere. Strive to enter that rest. And we ask ourselves, how does this, what do we do? How do we 
appropriate those truths for us today. And you probably know where I'm going. Because it's a, a, f- a familiar path that I take. Right? First, it's very simple. The warning remains valid. The warning remains valid for you and me. Remember, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We, brothers and sisters, we need to take very seriously the warning and the horrible possibility that some in our midst may not persevere to the end. And because of that. We have to remember, it's one thing to have heard. It's another thing to believe that to be true. And it's another thing to to embrace it and trust and rest in and hold firm to and endure to the end. By faith. And so we must approach, approach this life with the attitude of that failure is not an option. And we need to hear those warnings. Don't harden your heart. Don't fall prey to this deceitfulness of sin. Don't trust in yourselves. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pay much closer attention to what you've heard. Consider Jesus. Look to him. Trust to him. Trust in him. Hold on to that original confidence that you had in the gospel. Because as I said last week, it's in hearing those words, hearing from the word of God, hearing those warnings, those are all Those are ordained means through which God will uh, preserve his people. They are the ordained means through which his people will persevere. And so we need to be ready. We need to share those, those, those warnings with one another. The warning remains valid. Secondly, the promise still stands. It wasn't just true for the Israelites. It wasn't just true for the Hebrews. It's true for us today. Again, the promise remains. It's the same today as it was. The the truth remains. The surety and the longevity and the validity of the promise is not dependent upon your or my faithfulness or unfaithfulness. The surety and longevity and validity of the promise is dependent upon the faithfulness of God alone. And so the promise still stands. He made a promise to Abraham and his offspring. And we've said many times from our study in Galatians chapter 3 that because we have turned to faith, we've turned to Christ in faith and we've embraced him. We know that we're children of Abraham. We're his offspring. Therefore, the promise is for us and it's guaranteed. It's God who's the promise maker and the promise keeper. And we should rest in that promise because it still stands. Third thing is the rest still remains. The rest still remains for all of us. But it's twofold. Okay. And the first thing I want to say is for those who have never placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted in Christ, the offer of rest is here for you tonight. Today. Today is the day of salvation. You are unable to work hard enough and long enough and at the and the right enough things or the right things enough to earn or merit your salvation. Salvation is only possible in the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived and died and was buried and rose again for sinners like you and me. 
And he died according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. And we're, it is possible. And the call and the offer for you tonight is to cease striving. Cease striving to save yourself and, and turn and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Where you will find rest. Enter into the only rest, the true and final and full rest that will actually meet the needs that you experience in the midst of this hyper-competitive, performance-based, merit- and task-minded, goal-oriented culture. And then for those who have already turned and and are looking to Christ, for those of you who are already looking to Him, please know that the offer of rest is available for you. It's the same offer of rest. It remains. We are to maintain that proper tension between the already and the not yet. We are to live in such a way that we rest in Christ. And, and, and we know that he is, his work on our behalf is enough. And that this isn't our best life now. But the best is yet to come. The best still awaits. This wilderness that we live in and all that we're experiencing is only temporary. Eternity awaits. And we need to live with that eternal perspective in full view. This isn't our final home. And we hear that our peace and security and rest awaits. This is the, the spirit in Revelation 25 says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Today is a day in which we endure. Eternity and enjoyment away. Finally, his call is still clear. The call is still clear. You who are looking, brothers and sisters, who are looking to faith in Christ, you have been set free. You've been redeemed from the burden of your sin. You're no longer weighed down with your own efforts at works righteousness. You're not weighed down any longer By any type of merit in order to save yourselves, enjoy your rest. And at the same time, understand that while we are citizens of heaven, we remain aliens and sojourners. We're exiles. So we are to not give up. We're not to lose hope. We're to endure. We're not to give in to unbelief and disobedience. Our final day of rest will come. And the promise is sure. The promise is sure because God is the one who's made it. So we are to rest in Christ, endure, persevere, strive to enter into that rest. Focus on that rest. Work on comprehending what all that includes. We need to seek to strengthen our faith. We need to trust the spiritual resources that the Lord has given us. And we say, well, what are those resources? Brothers and sisters, very simply, the Lord's day. And our gathering here is the Lord's people. Through which we experience the ministry of the simple means of grace. 
I know that the Sabbath pointed to Christ and the rest that we have in him now by faith. And there are some that would say that because of that, that the Lord's day is not important. But remember, I also said that the Sabbath also pointed and still points to that which is still to come. It points to that which is still to come. The the rest is not yet fully realized. There is a future aspect to that rest. In the words of one commentator, I I want to share these with you. He said, "At, at a minimum, Christians need to set aside time not only to worship God, but also to enjoy Him and His bounty. To rest upon Him and experience at least a partial taste of that Sabbath rest that is to come. And while we are admonished by the Apostle Paul not to set stock in particular days or calendars, surely we will find ourselves worshiping together with the people of God on a regular schedule so that our normal practice will be to set apart Sunday as the Lord's Day for both His worship and our enjoyment of the rest He has promised and now gives at least in part. Few things are more profitable for Christians than to set apart the Lord's day for true rest and enjoyment of God's provision, as well as for the worship he so surely is due. And not only is that day and our worship, is the Lord's day and our worship a reminder and foretaste of what is to come? But it's here that the Lord ministers to us through word and sacrament and prayer. And it's through those means. It's those those means that we desperately need so that we might rest presently and we might endure and we might strive to enter that rest that is future. And it is far, far greater and better than anything you or I could ever manufacture on our own. And therefore should be looked forward to. More so than any other thing that we might participate in. It is by these simple means that we pay much closer attention to. Look to. Consider Christ. And it's through these simple means that he gives himself to us. He is our rest. Both now and And forever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.